welcome to the Lover's Hole, that Patrick O'Brien podcast. You remember the one where we're re-reading the Aubrey Maturin novels of our favorite author, Patrick O'Brien. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And we are just getting started on a whole new Aubrey Maturin adventure. Mike, can you reach back into ancient history? Where were we in the canon and where are we headed to this week? Right. So before that 100th episode, the listener Q&A, thanks so very much there, we had done our slow read of Master and Commander. But before that, we were at The Letter of Mark, the book just preceding the book that we're starting today here, 13 Gun Salute. So just as a quick reminder, at the end of The Letter of Mark, Jack had been struck off the list of post-captains, the naval list, following the stock exchange scandal, but he seemed to be on the road to reinstatement and he had been installed as a member of parliament by an old friend of his family. You know, he was given that pocket borough of Millport. Mm -hmm. Stephen learned what we had known for a while, that he and Jack had been the subject of intrigues and plots hatched by the traitors Ray and Ledward. Now, as we were Leaving the letter of Mark, the surprise was getting ready to embark on a South American voyage as a hired vessel hired by the government. Stephen and Diana had finally been reconciled after a nasty fall in a Swedish manor house. Right. And we're left, I think, trying to figure out, even if you've got the memory of the end of letter of Mark really clear in your mind, as I think we both really confessed we didn't have when we started reading, even if you've got that clear in your mind, as we open these paragraphs, We've got to work to figure out where we are here. And the clues are going to come as we get into this first chapter here. First of all, O'Brien's doing a really great job, Mike, of bringing us all up to date with the characters. And we think there's probably a a, a publication chronology reason for doing that, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So if, if we kind of go back in history here, this is O'Brien's 1991 return to the U.S. publishing market. It's when W.W. W. Norton released the 1989 UK book, 13 Gun Salute. So two years later, after the hardback had come out in the UK, the paperback was coming out in the UK now, the US is going to, for the first time in a long time, see Patrick O'Brien again, because he had lost his US publisher here. So I think, as you say, Ian, maybe O'Brien is saying, okay, you haven't seen me for a long time, you may not realize, because his other books were being re-released at the same time, but if somebody picked up this one, what was going on in the canon? And, yeah. and his return is not all at once. I mean, you know, for those of us who love Patrick Tall, we don't get that until 1995 in, in the U.S. And, you know, for, for that matter, for those audiobook fans, it's not until 2008 that we get Simon Vance recording these things. Wow. And 2011, before we get an ebook copy of 13 Gun Salute. So yeah, we've got a long way to go. And it's, as you say, O'Brien's doing a great job trying to bring us all back up to speed here. Yeah. So as we get caught up with who's who and who's where and who are they with and why they're doing it, we're going to hear that the surprise is still a letter of Mark. We're going to hear that she's about to depart on this long promised secret mission for Stephen Matcher into South America. And we're going to learn why she is, after all, in a bit of a hurry to depart quickly. So, Mike, as, as we start here, the surprise is sailing away from Shelmiston. Shelmiston, you remember, is the kind of privateering, pirate, wild west country, fictitious port 
where the surprise has been hanging out in her character as a privateer, as a letter of mark. There are wives and sweethearts waving from the shore. The men who are aboard have had what O'Brien called an unusually long spell of domesticity ashore. I'm like, I, th- this reminds me of the beginning of some of the very early books, the beginning of HMS Surprise, the beginning of Moorish's Command, where actually domesticity is kind of hanging heavy over the spirits of these these free, free-ranging buccaneer sailor men that we've come to know. Some of the men had had reduced domestic consequences because of the coming of uh, a baby. Um, we go on here with all the other tribulations they'd encountered, occasional differences of opinion, relatives by marriage, smoking chimneys, leaks in the roof, rates, taxes, the social round insubordination. I have a very strong feeling we're talking about Jack here, but O'Brien is politely ascribing all of these vicissitudes to the, the, the crew in general. And now they're sailing off into the light blue sky with a fleet of white rounded clouds marching over it in the right direction. The darker blue sea drawn to a tight line high on the horizon. And beyond that horizon, endless possibilities now, even now, in spite of their late and inauspicious start. And Mike, by the way, as we've come to expect, a really visual and poetically beautiful scene setting here right at the beginning for O'Brien. We go on to learn that this wasn't merely a holiday. This wasn't merely an escape. They did actually genuinely all appreciate this simpler world that they lived in. The, the wooden roof and the wooden walls are not expected to be universally waterproof. O'Brien goes on and calls it a settled hierarchy, independent of moral or intellectual merit, which did away, if not with the difference of opinion, then at least with its more candid expression. A world in which there were no morning calls and in which servants could not give notice. A world devoid of most comforts, complex enough in all conscience and not without its dangers, yet one whose complexity was, as who should say, more direct, less infinitely various. And above all, a world that they were used to. Ah, oh, it's, it's it's a great description. Puts us right there with with the sailor characters. I might. It's it's almost like we're about to you know hoist the topsails and that's it. But O'Brien's not quite going to let us get away with simply off into the blue. We're going to get a little a reminder or two this chapter of what's gone before. Yeah, as we said, it's like O'Brien is, is catching us up again and reminding us about our heroes, perhaps reintroducing them or just recalling them. So you know, he talks about Jack Aubrey and says that you know, Jack, the commander of the surprise, is nine-tenths marine. And here we're meaning nautical you know, yes. of the sea, not not the red coat variety. Yep. Uh, you know, and he tells it, you know, he spent more years on ships, especially formative years, than ashore. He's had his strongest emotions at sea, even though he fell in love on land, even though he had that you know, really unjust encounter with the law that, as, as O'Brien said, marked him deeply on land. At sea, he's had storms and shipwrecks and great fleet battles, single ship actions, you know, probably more than any other officer of his time. He's boarded many enemy ships. And that's the time, O'Brien tells us, when Aubrey feels the most alive. And yeah. all of these things have formed who he is. And with all of that, you know, O'Brien reminds us too that he's cheerful and optimistic, friendly, as he says, only severe in the case of bad seamanship or when he's on an enemy's deck in the midst of boarding. It's great, isn't it? And if if you're new to Jack Aubrey, we, we get very quickly into this really sympathetic, charismatic, kind of lovable character of him. 
if we've been following the arc, we're really pleased to read this as a reminder that he's been through some tough times in the last three or four books. And here he is not quite back at the peak of his career. He's still outside the Navy, but he's this great, authoritative, positive spirited commander. The text goes on to say, quite unlike his friend Maturin, meaning, I think, to contrast Jack's happiness and confidence in command and in combat with Stephen, who is neither all that happy in combat nor, I think, all that happy just at the very moment here. We learn that Stephen Maturin takes no pleasure in violence. We're reminded of the cold efficiency of the way that he fights, and then only when necessary. He's traveling with his surgeon's mate, this slightly on-again, off-again character of Nathaniel Martin, an unbeneficed and unreverended clergyman. That is to say, he's not currently looking after a parish or a church. He has left his cloth, his uh, his ecclesiastical regalia behind. He's just here now in the character of being a surgeon's mate. This is not him shaking off the shackles of life as a clergyman either. I think this is in polite deference to Jack and to the rest of the crew who don't like the idea of having an unlucky parson on a really, really long voyage, as this is going to be. And Martin is much more like Stephen, and therefore much unlike Jack. He only feels this fighting anger when he's attacked, even then only in this kind of wild, indignant sense of defence. And Mike, the, we go on and we get a little summary here of the, the attitudes that the rest of the crew have. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, we're kind of continuing on this theme of fighting, but we're also, like you say... And, you know, attitudes in general uh, with the crew, with this ship. So O'Brien tells us the rest crew has a variety of attitudes about fighting, uh, but they're all professional fighting seamen. They are very much a hand-picked crew that, you know, Jack selected. He could get who pretty much whoever he wanted. And they've been formed into a community by lots of foul weather, by lots of very hard fighting together. And they have a great sense of the surprise and a great pride in her. Yeah. And O'Brien reminds us that even though they look like a man of war's company, there's there's no Marines, there's no uniformed officers, there's no midshipmen, and there's a more relaxed atmosphere because they're a letter of mark. You know, it's it's so relaxed that as as they're leaving, the quartermaster who's standing there on the quarterdeck uh, with Jack just starts talking to Jack, something that's never going to happen you know, no. if, if we're on his majesty's ship here. And he's recalling this lovely woman that he's leaving behind. And Jack says, oh, I presume you mean Mrs. Heaven. This quartermaster is Mr. Heaven. And, you know, he thinks it's his wife. And, and the quartermaster replies, why, sir, in a manner of speaking, but some might say more on the porcupine lay, the roving line, if you understand me here. Well, Jack... I just love Jack. Jack replies, there's a great deal to be said for porcupines, heaven. Solomon had a thousand, and Solomon knew what o'clock it was, I believe. You will certainly see her again. (laughs) (laughs) A a great Aubreyism here shared between the quartermaster and Jack here. So, you know, I'm kind of looking at this thing like, porcupine Solomon, right? And, and and this is kind of an old standing joke sort of in, in, in Christian education circles here. In the Old Testament, 1 Kings 11.3, there's a phrase that says, he, meaning Solomon, had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. Now, you know, so not porcupines, concubines. 
Now, Jack has has added the the seven hundred and three hundred to say they were you know a thousand porcupines altogether. Now we leave out the last part of this Bible verse, and his wives led him astray. So, mm-hmm. uh, but you know sometimes when when you know O'Brien makes a reference like this, he means for us to see that extra part. So yeah. we you know we we get this laugh here about porcupines and concubines. And, and if we go back in the biblical context, the point that they're making in First Kings is saying, you know, Solomon, who is an Israelite, he's a Hebrew, there's the one God, has now married a thousand foreign women between, you know, wives and concubines, and they are of different religious backgrounds. And boy, that's, you know, you don't do that back in the Hebrew faith of that day. So they were leading him astray. And you know, I, I almost want to stick a pin in here and see if somewhere along this book there's some love interest, because it could be wives or concubines, that starts leading people astray. Now, it may not play out exactly like we think, but I think O'Brien's tapping us on the shoulder here and saying, remember this. I could see a whole other line of fan fiction here with, with, with King Solomon led astray by an Episcopalian wife as a ringer in the harem there. I think that could be great. If, if we're going to put it in today's anime or something, she'll have lots of prickly points that come out of her back when she's leaving oh, yeah. the tray, right? <laughs> Fantastic. Really, really great. Once again, we're back into references that take us really, really far deep. And it's, and it's funny stuff too. Now, as we've already said, the surprise is a letter of Mark. So she's not a king's ship. She's missing some things that you would expect to find aboard a king's ship. Although in other respects, besides the absence of Marines, the absence of the uniformed lieutenant, she looks a lot like a king's ship in the way she's fitted out and in her weaponry and then the way she's handled. However, on this occasion, we learn that the government is paying. First of all, the public story, if you like, the cover is that the government is paying for this mission to the South Seas to harry the French and American whalers and fur traders and enemy warships within her capacity. And that means that just like any other man of war, the people aboard the Surprise are exempt from the press. But beneath the cover story, her real mission is the administration's desire to get Stephen Maturin on the ground in Chile and Peru to help them to become independent states, thereby to weaken the Spanish empire. And since Spain is currently an ally to Britain, this mission has got to be secret, has got to have some deniability, as must have any payments that Maturin makes because he's carrying a certain enormous amount of gold for the suborning and the recreation of the states of Chile and Peru. Now, the crew don't know about this Sub Rosa confidential on the down low kind of mission. They're very happy, nonetheless, to be aboard this ship, the most extraordinarily successful privateer that's currently afloat. We had a, a fair amount of this at the end of the previous book, and we get reminded of it here, just how compendiously the crew had been able to get rid of their prize money. A few crew members had lost it all and they were sure that by re-enlisting, they wanted to remake that on this long mission. By the way, Mike, I've been reading Ian Toll's book about um, the six frigates, the, the founding of the American Navy. Right. And having taken prizes in the Caribbean, they knew that these, these guys were professionals. They knew that what they had to do to get them to re-enlist was get them back into home harbors, get them back to Boston and Philadelphia and Baltimore, and get them ashore so they could spend the money, so they could empty their pockets, so that they would then re-enlist. So it was funny that they, they had the same agenda here. Let's get the crew members ashore so they can blow it all, so that with pockets empty, they'll want to re-enlist here. Wow. 
So most of them, those with, with two and a half shares, had done very well following Captain Aubrey's advice ashore of thrift and modest low-risk investments. And it was interesting that they listened to Jack because he was an excellent seaman and was victorious in battle. None of them seemed to compute the fact that he had a reputation, a clearly publicly defined reputation now for making catastrophic business decisions ashore. But never mind. They ignored the fact that he'd done his own bit of gambling. They'd ignored the fact that he'd been taken on by all these projectors and promoters. They'd ignored the fact because they were very happy to turn to him for advice as being their guy. And O'Brien likened them to being people who turned to Tom Cribb, the boxer, for advice about foreign affairs. And Tom Cribb is a fairly famous bare-knuckle fighter in London, the world heavyweight boxing champion, who had given his name, it turned out, to one of the long guns of Jack's own personal property there in the letter of Mark. So a few of the former surprises, you know, all of them married men with children, had actually retired with their prize money. And, and O'Brien tells us from this, seven new inns or alehouses opened up called the Aubrey Arms, all close to the sea, all with signs of azure, three sheep's heads properly erased or erased proper, I think is yeah. that right? That's exactly. The heraldic uh, code that we use for defining arms. Yeah. Yeah. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, what is this erased proper thing here? Well, so azure means on a blue background. Three sheep's heads erased proper means three sheep's heads with jagged cuts off, showing that they are the, the, the decapitated heads of slaughtered sheep. It's pretty grim, as, as if they've been torn off rather than cooped or cut with a straight edge. And even though this is a nice testament to Jack, if, if you're interested in potential coats of arms for the Aubrey family, go over to the gun rooms suggested Aubrey coat of arms at hmssurprise.org forward slash Aubrey dash coat dash arms. We'll try and get that out to you on our socials as well. Because, yeah, there, there are a few different, more imaginative ways that fans would like. I would also argue in some cases, less imaginative ways that fans would like to give a, royal, a, a, a coat of arms for, uh, for Jack Aubrey. So we've got... The majority of the crew, the imprudent ones who've blown all their money ashore, they're re-enlisting. We've got a small number who've hung on to their money under Jack's advice and are now setting up pubs around the southern parts of England. Almost all of the surprises crew who have re-enlisted are men who are freely volunteering. O'Brien says in the text, they are sailing away under no compulsion on the part of authority, poverty or want of employment. These are men who had considerable sums at home and who were setting out on this prodigious voyage for something more, something less definite than gain and more important. And the, the more that they wanted, this, this extra intangible thing varied from man to man. Going far foreign, seeing new countries, cutting capers on Tom Tiddler's ground, great turn of phrase, and perhaps picking up gold and silver, sailing in a happy ship, sailing away in wartime from the strong likelihood of eventual impressment and forced service under officers of a very different character. And again, O'Brien's reminding us, especially if we're new to the canon here, that we've been learning in the first 12 volumes about harsh, brutal naval discipline, even under a relatively enlightened commander like Jack Aubrey. And that's what they're avoiding by sticking with Jack and the surprise and this privateering voyage. Yeah. And now, O'Brien reminds us that Jack's more is not money. He really, you know, despite these multiple fortunes that he's made, some lost, he doesn't really care that much about. He is intent on being reinstated to that Navy list, ideally with his former seniority. Now, 
after cutting out the friendship Diane in the last chapter and getting the seat in Parliament, that was promised to him, but it's only the word of the current First Lord. And as Jack's learned in, in Parliament, that First Lord could be replaced with a change in ministry, which is looking quite possible here. Jack had also recently learned from Stephen that the regent, you know, the head of state here, is not favorable to Jack. Uh, the regent is also somebody who could, you know, by by word, put Jack right back on the list here. Yeah. But this regent's perhaps unfavorable attitude to Jack caused by several things. For one, the regent's brother, the Duke of Clarence, is a fervent advocate for Jack and the regent's most outspoken critic. So <laughs> for, you know, a friend of my enemy, huh? So yeah. the uh, the regent also is not so much in Jack's corner because a number of Whiggish admirals have insisted that Jack must be reinstated, you know, telling the regent what to do. And partly because Jack has very recently criticized the regent's mistress. Hmm. So, yeah, very publicly. Uh, <laughs> And this is another one of these nice moments where O'Brien weaves the real-world historical timeline into the book, except this time we're not talking about real-world commanders and admirals and ships. We're talking about the royal family here. Lady Hartford, the mistress of the regent, it turns out had been rude to Stephen's wife, Diana. And Jack had been in public, I think it was at a levee or at a court appointment, where he had made this very public, rather damning comment on the mistress, not necessarily directly in person, but in terms unambiguous enough to cause offence. Jack had said, birds of a feather, birds of a feather, foul in their own nest, all tarred with the same brush. Dryden put it very well, speaking of another great man's mistresses. I have it, he said, false, foolish, old, ill-natured and ill-bred. <laughs> so, Jack's picking up a few things here. First of all, he's picking up these multi-adjectival stacks of insults. He's picking up a little bit of poetry from Mowat, among other people. He's picking up a bit of a love of Dryden, and I think he got directly from Mr. Patrick O'Brien himself. Right, right. And Mike, having made that point, O'Brien himself does a little writerly trick here. He's going to make a subtle change in timing. We started out in the present moment with the ship about to depart, and now we have a little bit of reverse time narrative. We're going to look back to the events that had led up to this quick and untimely departure. It's a very contemporary style of writing for somebody who's otherwise very much in the Jane Austen mold here. Yeah, listening to Patrick Tall and went through the, the chapter a couple of times. And the first two times I kept thinking, hold on a minute. I must not have been paying close attention. We were on the ship. We were leaving. Now, all of a sudden, you know, Matron's talking to Sir Joseph Blaine. Well, how, how's he doing that? Wait, 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 what happened here? <laughs> but as you say, it, we're, we have this little subtle change in timing here. O'Brien's looking back. So he's kind of picked up from talking about the regent's displeasure and saying, you know, Matron, who had told Jack about that, had learned about it from his friend, colleague, and head of naval intelligence, Sir Joseph Blaine, another one of our favorite mm. characters. Blaine hope that if they could find out who was in the drawing room, which individuals were in there when Jack made his comment, they could then pinpoint who told the region about him, about the comment, and they might learn who the high ministry official or officials are who were protecting the French agents, Ledward of Treasury and Ray of the Admiralty, 
uh, as we said earlier, the two that had framed Jack for rigging the stock exchange and got Jack pilloried and struck off the Navy list. The two who had escaped to Paris with some hidden help from inside England's ministry there. Now, Blaine suspects that this person who he called the worm is still very, very highly placed in the ministry and that this person likely has what he calls an unorthodox attachment for Ray. So if they can find out who is in the room, if they can then kind of check in with their servants and other sources of information to find out if any of these gentlemen have what Blaine calls ambiguous tastes, then they might be able to unmask the culprit. And, and you know, Blaine's got this all really figured out, you know, kind of his, his steel logic here. And Matron points out that, well, you know what? A lot of other people love to carry ill-natured gossip around town. (laughs) It might not just be this guy here. (laughs) Blaine's like, yeah, okay, well, maybe, maybe we'll find out more about our little point of view here. Uh, But Blaine has got other worries as well. Right. And again, we're still in catch-up mode here because we're hearing about what Blaine's current kind of concerns and goals are. He's worried that despite all the good fortune that's been amassing and the momentum behind Jack and the membership of Parliament and the prize money and all the positive feels that are going on there, he's worried that, especially with events like this rather cattish remark about Lady Hartford, Jack might ruin his chances of being restored to the Navy list if he stays on shore much longer. He says, Parliament has come back into session. There's another chance for Jack to get up on his feet and uh, and say something untoward. There are forces here conspiring against him, and while he's visible and present, he's vulnerable, maybe even to the same kind of scam that Ray and Ledwood pulled in the stock exchange fraud. Even if Melville, the first lord, stays in post, if Jack does anything else, then Melville's hands are going to be really more and more tied about the possibility of uh, of Jack moving on into, back into the post-captain's list. And Stephen is the bearer of this message back to Jack. And we get this lovely bit of characterization of Stephen. We, we had our characterization of Jack as the benign, enlightened leader, kind of pirate rogue as well. And we get this lovely characterization, especially in Jack's eyes, of his great friend Stephen. We learn that Stephen is no mathematician, no astronomer, no seaman, no, no, no sportsman, but is one of the world's most amazing physicians and world class in foreign languages and political intelligence. So the idea of him being sent on this mission to South America absolutely rings true here. He adds, Maturin might have been all the Sibyls rolled into one, together with the Witch of Edmonton, Old Moor, Mother Shipton, and even the Holy Nautical Almanac. And with with this credibility behind him, Stephen, now speaking in, in, in real time here, tells Jack what he's up against on land, all these potential adverse interests, the possibility of more of these unguarded moments when Jack is speaking in public, the, uh, the possibility of deliberate provocation by people working against him. And on the basis of all of that, says Jack, we should leave soon. Was sort of blown away by this description here of all the Sibyls and the Witch of Edenton and Old Moor and Mother Shifton. And I think maybe it's O'Brien's way of saying Stephen is giving Jack kind of nautical advice. You know, it's time to yeah. take the ship out right now. And, and I almost would sort of think, well, certainly 
Jack's going to believe him about politics. He's going to believe him about the palace information, all that stuff. But, you know, telling me when to sail. Yeah, maybe not. But I think maybe this is O'Brien's way of saying why in Jack's mind, Jack might pay strong attention to him here. So if, if we roll all these people up here, the Sybils were these oracles of ancient Greece that, that over the you know kind of the remaining centuries right up to you know 1 BC it was sort of one then three then five then 10 and they kind of spread from ancient Greece to across the, the whole Mediterranean and Asia Minor world of the time so these people kind of tell the future the witch of Edmonton from a 1621 play about this kind of unfairly ostracized woman who's accused of being a witch because of all these bad things happening around town. And, and she can't fight this accusation. So she, she, you know, in desperation turns to witchcraft herself because uh, she has no way out. But she finds that she can't really do much harm because everybody that's accusing her has kind of already turned to the devil or is turning to the devil. So, right. you know, it's uh, you know, a really fascinating play that sort of gets to the question of, you know, who's responsible for the villagers' cruelties and corruption? Was it the witch? Was it the devil? Was it the villagers themselves? Which kind of seems to be a little bit of a reflection on Matron and what he's been through and the Catholics have been through and, you know, his feeling about humanity and individuals and freedom and stuff. So, and kind of his conflicts. We talked about in the Q&A last time, some of his conflicts about what do I do in pursuit of these noble goals you know, working in intelligence. Well, Old Moor, fascinatingly here too, there was a British one and an Irish one. So both Old Moor's almanac, uh, the the one spelled with the K is the almanac ending in a K, the British one, but I'm pretty sure O'Brien's talking about the Irish one, which started in 1764, started originally published as called the Irish Merlin. Hmm. Later, you know, we come to find out that it's old Moore, but Moore wouldn't identify himself at first because he was devoutly Catholic. And this is a time when Catholics were, you know, essentially being squashed in Ireland there. So he did not want to call attention to himself. But he was a guy who also, uh, in addition to, you know, mathematics and, and astrology, had some kind of prognostications predicting the future in this thing. And and it continues to this day. It's still published. Likewise, Mother Shipton, an English soothsayer and prophetess who predicted, among other things, you know, Henry VIII's marriage to Anne Boleyn and the fall of the Catholic Church at the hands of Henry. So some very interesting things. And then, of course, the Nautical Almanac, the Holy Nautical Almanac. <laughs> this is this is how the heck we find ourselves. Ian, you're much more familiar th- with this one than I am. Yeah, it's funny that two two things called the same thing but couldn't be more different. Old Moore's Almanac. You can still buy paperback copies of Old Moore's Almanac. Comes out every New Year with you know Nostradamus horoscope type predictions and you know who's going to win the Grand National and all that sort of thing. A very different beast with a very different purpose from a nautical almanac. Not many, at least not in British waters, no sailing vessel or commercial vessel. Would 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 float without it knew that it had a copy of Reed's Nautical Almanac and Reed's Nautical Almanac is you know four or five inches thick star charts sun and moon charts tide tables ephemerae sine and cosine and lookup tables for doing sextant site reductions it's the it's the the one paper source that you need to do all of your navigation especially if you want to back up for when 
the battery goes down and your sat nav is broken. So he's, I, I love this really all encompassing description of all the different kinds of both real world scientific and folk knowledge that Stephen is, you know, attributed with here. It's a very, very generous, very admiring way of talking about Stephen. Jack then says, well, wait, wait a minute. Are you saying, Stephen, are you saying that I should put to sea immediately? And Stephen says, I believe so. And this like switches Jack into high gear straight away. He calls for Killick and there's this very great comic moment when he said, Killick! And it turns out that Killick was just a few meters behind a bush listening in on this whole thing. He waits a moment and then steps out and says, here I am, sir. And Killick is told, get the sea chest ready by dawn tomorrow, pass the word for Bondon. And Stephen notes here that even though he, Stephen, had been trying to have a quiet, private moment with Jack, even though they're ashore and not at this particular moment on, on a ship with all the thin walls, he'd been trying to have a private conversation with Jack and Killick had done him brown. Killick had outmaneuvered him and got in on the inside of this conversation here. Luckily, though, Killick's really only interested in the news as a source of personal gossip. His loyalty to Jack's interests, that's Killick's loyalty to Jack's interest as perceived by Killick, was beyond all question. So there's no way that Killick was trying to pull a fast one. He's just too curious for his own good. Walking back to the house, and still we're, we're in reported past speech. We're still before the time when we're on the quarterdeck of the surprise here. Stephen notices how, despite the best of intentions, Jack's new bowling green, like his rose garden and his, his, his greens generally, are never quite right, never quite green and mowed and clean and proper despite the help that he gets from all his crew members. We get this little reminder here that despite the strong work ethic and Brahminical cleanliness of all these sailors, they don't really know how to keep green stuff growing. It almost, it to be harkened back to a little kind of a an echo of, you know, things just never go quite right on land. Let's get yeah, to sea again. Not, you know, we've had that so many times. Right. Yeah. right. But Stephen, how, you know, now having kind of accomplished his mission from Blaine is all of a sudden, really taken aback with himself. He's like, whoa, whoa. He's thinking, I, I'd really mean for Jack to take me completely, literally, not leave at dawn. Stephen is thinking, you know, I've got at least a week's worth of business, you know, and I don't even know that I can fit it into that before I go. Oh, how could I have forgotten that the ship's already provisioned and could sail immediately? Uh, and Stephen's, you know, all this is compounded by the fact that he's really not in a good state of mind. He's really unhappy with his bankers. He's unhappy with the universities that he's been planning to endow some chairs in with his newly inherited fortune from our last book here. He's hungry and he's cross with his wife. He's remembering, you know, some of her last words where she said, I will tell you what, Matron, if this baby of ours has anything like the discontented, bilious, liverish expression you have brought from town, it shall be changed out of hand for something more cheerful from the foundling hospital. So I, you know, I think I'm kind of like just blown over going, whoa, 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 what do you mean this baby of ours? My gosh. So, you know, this is new news, you know, told in such a typical O'Brien way. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to hear about it this way. And oh my gosh, what a blow. You know, if, if this kid is anything like you, I'm taking it and trading it for an orphan. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and all of this state, and we kind of reflect back, Stephen reflects back, he realized that, you know, he's the owner of the surprise. He can tell Jack when they're going to sail and when they're not, but 
he and Jack never interact that way. Jack's always the commander. And Steven only kind of secretly in, in, in the back pages owns the, you know, the ship here. But it's no use. You know, Steven's thinking, you know, maybe I can kind of pull this back in. But he realizes that between Jack and Bondin, all the arrangements have been made. All the express messages have been sent out. And now Jack's saying, listen, listen to the clock tower. We got to go hurry for dinner. Yeah. In this sudden hurry of spirits, we're it feels like we're being whisked past this news that Diana's having a baby. And I've got to say, the, the first time I read it, the, the, for this go around, I was going, oh, yeah, yeah, Diana's having a baby. Oh, yeah. Um, but then I had to go, wait, wait, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Like, she has been pregnant before, but the pregnancy didn't run to term. Now she's pregnant. Wait, hold on. Like you said, Mike, typical Patrick O'Brien, it's told in passing. The last we heard at the end of the previous book, they had literally just got back together after many years of acrimonious separation. They were singing opera together in a coach driven by Yagiello in the very last paragraph of Letter of Mark. And very typically, this is dropped in in passing. I can, without spoilers, I can say we're going to get more details um, about this in a couple of paragraphs time. But wow, this is a big reveal here. (laughs) Right, right. Well, you know, a very irritable Stephen complains about not wanting to be ruled by bells on land. And, and Jack says, hey, Stephen, this is Liberty Hall. You can do whatever you want. But as for me, I don't want to disoblige Sophie, who's putting on a very fine gown, a prodigious fine gown. And, and he says, because it's either, and he can't remember, it's either, you know, kind of Sophie and my anniversary or maybe it's her mother's anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just love Jack. And Jack is sure again. And this disoblige, this offending somebody by not doing what they want. O'Brien picks this word up again. So on the one hand, Jack is keen not to disoblige his immediate family. That's if he can remember what the heck anniversary it is. Stephen doesn't want to disoblige her either. You would think that he might be all kind of loving and careful and cautious given that she's uh, she's having a baby, but they've had some disagreements lately. And we get another little roll back into the recent past to explain how we got to where we got to. They've been arguing, Stephen and Diana, about a new potential property for Diana's horses. They'd finally decided in the end that she would stay with Sophie, continue to use Jack's pastures, which are far better for rearing horses. Uh, and they had argued as well about whether Diana could or should ride while she's pregnant. My God, is the reported speech from Diana. My God, Maturin, how do you go on? Anyone would think I was a prize heifer. You are turning this baby into an infernal bore. And uh, she's, she's very, very, in a wily and manipulative way, directing his presumed slights onto the baby to really, really wind him up and get under his skin. Skillful bit of wifing there by Diana Maturin. And we learned that their arguments had become a little bit more spirited, not so much because they disliked their situation, but because things had started to get more real. Their previously civil marriage had been made real in a church. Previously, when they'd been cohabiting, there had never been a raised voice. There'd never been oaths or broken furniture or plates. And we're realizing here that perhaps some of this new high-spiritedness had come from Stephen having given up laudanum, given up his opium when he married Diana fully. He didn't realize, he reflects, how calming it had been in the past. Uh, Or, on the other side, what a shamefully inadequate husband it had made him, particularly for a woman like Diana. And here we get a little clue about where where, where little baby Maturin has arisen from. 
stopping opium had added an almost entirely new and almost entirely beneficent depth to their connection. It had probably caused the heat of their arguments, each of them trying to preserve their independence, and it had certainly caused the baby. Well, thank you, Patrick O'Brien, for doing everything but draw a diagram for us there. But we get straight to the emotional context for Stephen. And this is a lovely, lovely moment. When Stephen had first heard that fetal heartbeat, his own had stopped dead and then turned over. He was filled with a joy he had never known before and with a kind of adoration for Diana. I'm like, this is a, a lovely Stephen moment just dropped here in this rather chaotic, factual, catch me up as you can paragraph. Oh, we're right there. Stephen the father. Right. It's it's lines like this that, you know, we're rereading and and I kind of re-remember them. And it's it's why I just feel like a deer in a headlights like last week when we were, you know, answering listeners' questions. What was your favorite? And I'm going, oh my gosh, they're favorites everywhere. And and some of them come quickly to mind, and some of them I rediscover like this and go, Yes. I love it. Love it. Love it. Well, Thinking about his child reminds Stephen that uh, he's gotten several letters about Jack's natural child, Sam, Sam Panda. So Stephen hopes to speak with the patriarch, he says, in Lisbon on their trip to get Sam a dispensation to continue towards ordination as a Catholic priest. Right now, uh, because Sam is a natural child, a bastard, we might say, you know, he can only get as high as an exorcist. And Stephen's trying to really help along with that. A lot of fun ensues here once Stephen has mentioned the patriarch because Jack has no idea what a Catholic patriarch is. And he's thinking about Methuselah and Moses and, you know, oh, you're you know making this up. But <laughs> as we get through all of that, O'Brien tells us how fond Jack is of Sam, how much he appreciates Stephen's help, and how glad Jack is that Sophie has been so good about Sam as well. And he's he's feeling a little bit guilty, you know, anytime he thinks about Sam and thinks about Sophie and he's about to walk into their, you know, somebody's anniversary dinner here. But he gets his emotions in check before he arrives. Such a relief. Such a relief. So here he is. Jack uh, arrives at the house again. We're in past time before the departure of the surprise. We're recollecting this dinner that took place at uh, Jack's house. Jack, in this moment, is telling the women that they're off in the morning and all the women protest. Like, what, are you kidding me? You're going right now and all these things that they've got planned. Jack's going to miss the girl's birthday. They have a dinner with Admiral Shank. And if there was ever an admiral called Shank, you'd have to sit down and eat dinner with him, wouldn't you, Mike? <laughs> sure. No matter how he spells his surname. Even the now timid mother-in-law, Mrs. Williams, says, Mr. Aubrey could not possibly fly off in that wild manner. Stephen walks in, and Diana, who, unlike Sophie, has dressed in a rather careless way, asks Stephen if he's sailing tomorrow. And when he says yes, she runs off up the stairs, two at a time, like a boy. And Mike, I, I wasn't sure how to take this, this running off thing. I wasn't sure. First of all, she's she's pregnant. I don't know how far along she is, probably not very far along. Upstairs two at a time would be a struggle in the later trimesters of pregnancy, I'm going to guess. Anyhow, I thought that this was like an emotional flounce out, that she was quitting the whole social scene with this news. But this is Diana we're talking about. Right. I, in, I thought exactly the same thing. And after we had all their big heated arguments and everything, I thought, oh, my gosh, no, no, there's going to have this big blowing apart before they leave. But... 
O'Brien rescues us right away, right? Yeah, I mean, in a in a cheap Victorian melodrama, this would have been a flounce out, and how could you possibly? But this is Patrick O'Brien, and this is Diana Villiers, Diana Maturin. The dinner guests arrive. We learn about Edward Smith, the other naval officer, a shipmate of Jack's, and his wife. And Diana walks back in, and the reason that she had left was not, well, at least not primarily to vent her emotions. Her reason for getting out of the room was so that she could come back and make her entrance. She walks in wearing beautiful blue silk, which sets off her black hair with her blue eyes and the diamond, the immense blue Peter diamond. And she really turns heads. She's not being vain about it. She's not trying to get her moment, but she's going, I'm Diana. I still can carry this off. This is going to be an occasion. So I'm going to play my part in the occasion. And uh, just as this happens, Killick announces dinner. Yeah. And, and I was kind of feeling like it was like, okay, Diana had said earlier, I don't think big pregnant women need to have fancy dresses and stuff like that. I don't like, all of a sudden it's, my husband is leaving at dawn and I'm here in this occasion and she said, you know, I'm going to make this special. So I was, yeah. I was all warm and tingly. I don't know if oh, that did, yeah, but it yeah. certainly, you know, made me all warm and tingly. Well, you know, unfortunately, we don't get to sit with that very long because we're immediately transported to the men after dinner, drinking port, talking about chaos in the world, and Stephen complaining about his bankers. He's going on and on. They never answer his letters. They're unable to tell him his balance. They don't understand Portuguese. And he says he just wonders if anyone there knows a banker who understands his business, a modern fugger. And Jack is just kind of aghast. Jack's like, oh, wait, wait. You know, he remembers that Edward Smith is the son of a parson, that he's known as one of these blue light admirals, you know, a very religious man, you know, prayers multiple times and everything. And and he says, Stephen, if you please. And Stephen is just having none of it. He's like, he says, you know, very haughtily back to Jack, I'm referring to the Fuggers, a high Dutch family of bankers in the time of Charles V. Jack says, oh, I was not aware. Perhaps I mistook your pronunciation. I beg your pardon. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love how Stephen doesn't try to explain this at all. This is going to be still complete blank as far as Jack is concerned. First of all, anybody who's educated in the traditional British system, even like me, would go Charles V. I don't know who Charles V. There's never been a Charles V. There, there's never been a French king called Charles V. There's certainly never been an English or Scottish king called Charles V. And we've only had two Charles's so far. He's talking about the Holy Roman Empire. This is a complete whole other world. And he's talking about the world of high finance, which, of course, Jack knows nothing about what Stephen does. The House of Fugger was exactly, as we learn here, a German, high Dutch in this case means German, private bank. It collected political and military information as well. It was a big part of Renaissance kind of scheming and wheeling dealing around Europe. It ensured the survival of Catholicism after the Reformation by being the predominantly successfully Catholic family in an entirely Protestant town and funded Catholic orders like the Jesuits. So this family had risen from being weavers to being imperial nobility in the Holy Roman Empire, connected to the Habsburgs, networked in over 100 locations, 100 villages in eastern Swabia, which is the territory to the west of Munich. And Mike, there is still a private bank, very small private bank, with the name of Fugger, based in Augsburg in Swabia, just east of Munich. Wow. Wow. And it's it's fascinating here that you know, have this, you know, they're they're all the way, as you say, in from Venice to Antwerp to Lisbon to Seville. And they've got this whole intelligence network going on in, yeah. in addition to all this financing. So 
uh, and and the strong Catholic influence here. So a phenomenal O'Brien reference tied back to Stephen here. Well, speaking of these bankers, Jack tells Stephen that Captain Smith's brother is setting up a bank office close by. And they're, you know, a very strong naval family. Stephen knows one of his other brothers. And, and Stephen should consider that for his banking needs. And Jack throws in, he says, you know, I wasn't happy when I saw, and he's, he's referring to, you know, one of the one of the primary characters at Stevens Bank losing large sums of money at Brooks. Well, the captain says that his brother Tom runs a very good bank. Its notes are accepted all over England, even in Scotland, as readily as the Bank of England. And Stephen remembers then that he does know Captain Smith's brother, Captain Henry Smith, and he thinks to himself that these, you know, these are kind of the, the the open, friendly naval officers that he likes. So Stephen is thinking these are good guys. Unfortunately, I didn't find any reference to to these people in, as captains in real life. But we've got Stephen thinking, ah, here's a good naval family, people that I kind of like. Jack is giving me financial advice. O'Brien's already told us a little bit about who actually takes financial advice from Jack. And, you know, Stephen perhaps is thinking about moving this large fortune. Wow. All of this in backstory to leaving on the surprise. I don't know. And I'm, I think I've got to go kick a, a little refreshment myself here. Yeah, it's, it's late in the episode. But I think it's a great moment to just step away and uh, double check the bank balances and join us back after this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back from the break. I hope that all your investments are sound. I've got to say, Mike, I think we're invited to speculate that maybe Stephen might be about to make a decision that has an important impact on his investments. We've been reminded just how wealthy he is. We've been reminded that he's looking for a different set of bankers. He started to take advice from naval men. Mm, Makes you wonder, right? Makes you wonder where that might all end up. It does indeed. Anyhow, we're done with our little reverse narrative there. We're done with catching up on that last set of interactions between Jack and Stephen and all their contacts ashore. We're back aboard ship. The surprise is sailing away. And here, Stephen's reconciling himself to being at sea earlier than he'd wished. Jack has arranged for the Purser Standish to join the ship off of the Eddystone Light, bringing letters. So there's a chance that Stephen can get much of his work done on the way to Eddystone and send letters back ashore with the pilot ship. He's also going to have time when they stop in Lisbon, which is going to be a waypoint along the way. He's looking forward as he talks and thinks here, to all the natural philosophy that he and Martin are going to share on the voyage and this all-important intelligence work that he has ahead of him. We get this little recap again of what he's about and what his goal is here. He wants to stop the pro-French, also pro-slavery party in South America. And as well as being in line with his opposition to French Bonapartism, to the rule of the tyranny, if you like, of Napoleon Bonaparte, Stephen's also opposed to slavery. He's also opposed to all kinds of tyranny, and in particular, the tyranny of the Castilian Spanish over Catalonia. So a move against the formal Spanish imperial regime is a move also in support of his people back in Catalonia. And 
Even though the ship appears to have left in a bit of a hurry, even though there's still work to be done, the hands don't mind. The men who've been with Jack the longest know that leaving in a hurry is often a sign that Jack's got some kind of private intelligence and that he might be on the way to hunt a prize. Everyone, therefore, is hurrying to put the surprise back to rights. We have the one ally that I would want if I was hurrying to get a ship back in shape. That's Tom Pullings. He's a naval commander, customarily called a captain. He's aboard as a volunteer, serving as Jack's first lieutenant. All the officers and Jack's regular followers from the last voyage are abroad. We have former lieutenants Davidge and West, two naval lieutenants who hope to be reinstated to the Navy list for their own peccadilloes once Jack gets made post. They also are carrying some heavy debts to pay off at home. So they're pretty strongly motivated, the officers, to stand alongside Jack, just like all the seagoing guys are. Yeah. Now, we do learn that there are some new hands that, you know, you got this incredibly well-formed crew, but there's some new hands that were taken on board as they were coming back from the Baltics. And, and they have to kind of be formed into the crew, if you will. They don't have all this shared experience. And the Shelmerstonians are, are kind of thinking they really don't know what to make of these Orkney men, these, you know, these sailors from off the northeastern coast of Scotland here. Well, because they put to sea so fast, the watches are all kind of strangely mingles together and pullings orders a change in the sails. And, and nobody's really kind of been assigned yet. Who's doing what? Who's working on any? But these Orkney men happen to be up in the forecastle with their leader, Macaulay. And they kind of, they quickly clap onto the falls and they start singing this shanty. And the shanty is, is got some sort of words of some unknown dialect uh, mixed with English as well. Ian, you, you know a little bit about Orkney here. Well, I, I, I don't think I know much about Orkney. I've never been. It's a fascinating place. For the earlier part of its history, it was part of one of the Norse kingdoms. It was part of the earldom of Orkney, which was subject to the King of Norway until um, sometime in the uh, 15th century. And then it became part of Scotland, the Kingdom of Scotland. And the dialect that they speak in Orkney, known as Orcadian, is a mixture of lowland Scots, which is the Scots-inflected English grammar that you'd see uh, from poets like Robbie Burns. It's a combination of that and the old Norse language, Norn. So, and, and I remember noticing as I read this shanty to myself in the text i thought the the words have a sort of nordic flavor rather than a gaelic flavor so they're not speaking gaelic there there have been plenty of men aboard hebrideans for example and highlanders who spoke in gaelic but these guys are speaking and singing nordic inflected orcadian and it sounds really otherworldly the harmonies that they're singing as well sound really otherworldly to jack and Stephen too yeah there's this you know so they're, they're going through this there are a few english words at the end they you know they say one long pool more power young blood and and jack's listening to all this and he says you know it's in a scale that's unknown to him and at the very end there's this high falsetto shriek uh, it's the kind of the last line comes together and these blocks crash astonishingly together, you know, really blows Jack away. And Jack's thinking, I got to get Stephen up here on deck to hear this. But and, and he mentions it to Pullings and Pullings says, look, you might not want to do that right now because, you know, last I saw him, he is upset. He's sitting in the front of like these huge stacks of papers and he's roaring at Martin like a bull. Yeah. And he's he's clearly not in, in a good shape. 
we're learning a little bit about what the consequences are for Stephen, though, of this pile of papers. This is more than just your average bureaucratic upset. Martin is really hurt by this real grouchy reply and attitude that he's getting from Stephen, much worse than he's ever heard from him before. And we learn a little bit more about the context for this, this upset here. A lee lurch of the ship has sent Martin staggering. He's knocked over and mingled a pile of papers, four piles, in fact. The piles are intelligence about the advanced French efforts to change the state of affairs in Spanish and Portuguese South American possessions. Now, how did we come by the papers? The French had sent a new frigate, the Diane, which we've heard about, to attack Allied merchantmen and South Sea whalers um, and to land agents and arms and money on the South American coast. This is the frigate, though, that Jack had cut out from St. Martin's in the previous book. So Stephen had gained all this information, all these piles of paper from captured French agents. He was sifting through letters with their correspondence. He was getting the names of French sympathizers and people whose loyalty could be purchased. And all this had had to be translated from different French encoding systems. These things then were in the piles that Martin had just mixed up, along with papers from Stephen's private business, trying to endow university chairs, annuities and settlements and his financial affairs, Usually, this work might have been done, the decoding work particularly might have been done back among Sir Joseph's department um, in the Admiralty. But he, Joseph and Stephen had decided not to trust the worm in the ministry, which is why this was all in Stephen's hands here in the cabin. Thinking about Stephen with the issues with Diane, with his still dealing with his withdrawal. And, and you know, he's so carefully over probably the course of a week separated all these documents into four files according to the four ways that they have to be decoded. And now they're all mixed together with everything else again. It's <laughs> week's worth of effort, boom, up in, uh, up in piles. Martin wisely heads to the Orlop. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think I'm going to get some work done, right? And he records the ship's medical stores. He checks on their instruments and supplies. And then Stephen comes by to, to check in. And Martin reports that Everything seems right, except I can only find a one-quart bottle of laudanum instead of these usual, you know, multiple five-gallon carboys that Stephen has aboard. And Stephen assures him, no, that's right. That's that's all we're taking. It's only to be used in the greatest emergency. And Martin says, you know, Stephen, that, that used to be your panacea. You know, you kind of gave this to everybody for everything. Stephen says that there are grave objections to using too much laudanum. And Stephen is thinking about some of the problems with using too much laudanum. He remembers back to his servant, Padine, who we recall from the last book had begun addicted. He had deserted the ship. He broke in to an apothecary to, to find some laudanum. And because of all that was sentenced to be hanged, uh, Stephen had gotten Jack to use his influence in Parliament to get the sentence changed to transportation to Botany Bay. And Stephen had sent along a letter to the governor of New South Wales on Padine's behalf. But, I, you know, with, with all this going through Stephen's mind, I'm sure in Martin's mind, he's thinking, ah, I think perhaps I know why, <laughs> why Stephen is behaving a little bit like this. <laughs> this guy was a full tilt drug addict before. No wonder he's a little bit out of his mind here. Yeah, and a, a, a fulfilled drug addict who's discovered um, new, how we say, uh, physical powers. Um, right. Now that he's off the off the laudanum again, so yeah, congrats for that. Right. I don't think it's a complete coincidence that we then a encounter a lighthouse. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
So they notice that the ship is stopping. They head up on deck. Lieutenant Davidge asks Stephen if he's amazed. And in typical Stephen O'Brien form says, yes, certainly looking at the lighthouse. As noble an erection as could well be conceived looking at the Eddystone light. And again, Mike, Freudian much. Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> David says, no, no. He's saying, what the hell is this guy talking about? Noble erections. The decks, the brass work, the squared yards all fit for an admiral's inspection. And Stephen says, pays his compliments to the work. He carries on, though, looking across at the lighthouse until he sees the pilot cutter running down. He's thankful then that he's got all of his letters back home prepared and ready to go. When he returns to the deck, there are parcels being shifted from the pilot cutter that's now alongside up aboard the Surprise. Jack says he's going to be taking observations for this scientist Humboldt all across the Pacific. And so, therefore, these instruments include an azimuth compass, a special invention by Humboldt to measure humidity, special thermometers, and a Geneva cyanograph. And, Mike, a fascinating mix here of the absolutely real and the perhaps slightly fanciful. Humboldt and measuring humidity and salinity is absolutely a real thing. Humboldt was a real part of the story of oceanography. Um, he was a German polymath and geographer. He was a longtime advocate of systematic geophysical measurement of the state and shape and character of the world's surface. At this time, 1799 to 1804, he was mostly traveling in the Americas. That was the first Western scientific exploration there. And for people who can remember their high school geography like me, you might remember being told about the Humboldt Current. The Humboldt Current has, uh, it says here, a considerable cooling influence on the climates of Chile, Peru, and Ecuador, and is responsible for the dryness of the Atacama Desert and the coastal areas of Peru. So, Mike, dry Atacama Desert, uh, climate of Chile and Peru, I think these all might be things that we'll come back to, thanks to Mr. Humboldt. So, Humboldt is real. A cyanograph, well, you and I have both looked into this, can't find a real connection to what they might mean by a cyanograph. When I first read the chapter many years ago, I assumed that it was some other kind of measuring instrument. But it seems like cyanography is an early kind of photography um, using a photochemical process to, to catch a, an image of a static subject projected onto a sheet of chemically treated blue paper, hence cyanograph. Seems to be fanciful, though, because cyanography wasn't really a thing until the 1840s. Right. Looking through many, many Google hits, I found a potentially very tenuous connection here. Cyanography was invented in the 1840s, as I say. There are a couple of references that I found online to a book called Le Premier Livre Imprimé par le Soleil, the first book printed by the sun, by an Englishman named Ibbotson, who had published it in 1840 at a time when he was living in Switzerland. And that made me think, Geneva cyanography. It wasn't quite made with the cyanography process. It was a similar uh, process related to lithography. This book was an album of contact prints of ferns and grasses and flowers. So it was a botanical textbook, in other words, and used a process that Ibbotson described as being the independently invented process of Friedrich Gerber of Bern, which had as a process first been published in 1839. So we've got a reference to Switzerland, a reference to an early photographic process with, an, with a reference to botany as well. But it's actually happened three or four decades later than we're talking about here. So, Mike, te tenuous but possible. Yeah, uh, although maybe as, as kind of a nod to saying, you know, a nod and a wink, and, and yeah, maybe the botany connection is right. You know, we immediately go to Mr. Standish, this new purser, 
who's uh, you know never been at sea before. He's on board the cutter and is getting ready to come on board the surprise after he's kind of guided all the valuables to be you know hoisted up to the surprise. As, as he's getting ready to come up, the post comes up from the cutter. Jack goes through that, gives a stack to Stephen. Mr. Standish's violin comes aboard. So now we now we know, ah, maybe this is how this guy got this position, right? We get a lot of charts from Humboldt showing maximum and minimum sea temperatures that are all wrapped up there. And once all these packages are delivered, Standish is you know, being told, okay, it's time for you to go. The pilot's ready to take off. And they are standing above him are Stephen and Martin, which, you know, again, that, that botany to Standish, to the packages, to Stephen and Martin. And they clearly are no great hands at this thing. And they are attempting simultaneously to give Standish advice about when to leap. And, you know, as, as we can just picture, one of them is hollering, now, and the other one's saying, no, don't jump, right? <laughs> and and Standish, you know, is kind of trying to take all this in. The boats are rocking. The pilot is saying, I got to go, I got to go. And Standish finally jumps too hard, smacks himself against the ship's side, and falls into the water between the two ships here. Well, the pilot quickly backs away so as not to crush him in between the ships. And Jack, you know, seeing this, jumps in, but unfortunately hits the purser, driving him down another four fathoms. The purser was coming up through the water as Jack went into the water. But this time, the delayed time, allows the crew to get some ropes in. So Jack gets the guy, slips a man harness over him, and and you know they pull the purser aboard as Jack comes up here. The purser's cut, bleeding all over the place, but you know, it's expressing his gratitude to to Jack. And meanwhile, Killick <laughs> You know, Killick is grabbing Jack, you know, kind of bullying him down below and says to Jack, and these here woolen drawers, sir, he said, you done it again. You are always a doing of it. But this time you'll catch your death without you put on these woolen drawers. Whoever heard of dipping his bare offs off the Eddystone? It's worse than the North Pole. Far worse. So... Killick absolutely reading Jack the riot act, <laughs> getting into his woolen pants so that he uh, he won't freeze his his bare arse there. Uh. <laughs> and a, a, another bit of characterization we've had nice bits of characterization to reintroduce Stephen and Jack and also Diana. And who else do we get? Actually, we get Killick before we get Sophie, and that's quite right, quite funny and quite telling. We get reminded of the this very kind of shrewish but very dedicated character of Killick. The foremast hands, meanwhile, are wiping up the blood. The purser leaves to be stitched up. He's not. Nobody's feeling very good about the purser. Awkward Davis is looking at this thing. This is this is bad luck. He doesn't like the idea of other people sharing his distinction of having been pulled out of the drink by Captain Aubrey either. And he notes in a very detached way, "Oh, look, there he is. The, the, the purser is now throwing up." <laughs> so he's. Fallen in, he's got fished out by Captain Aubrey, he's bled all over the deck, and now he's throwing up and he's ruined the captain's fine pantaloons. He could almost be a Jonah at this point, Mike, and it's, uh, right. it's not looking good for Standish, is it? No, the crew the crew is not liking this. I mean, there, there are words passed all up and down about this thing. They don't like this, and they, they don't think this is very lucky for their new voyage here. And we get a nice little button to the chapter here now. We're back into the mode of Jack and Stephen. They haven't had much chance in this chapter to talk together aboard ship, 
but the last beat of the chapter is them together on the quarterdeck. Jack wants to show Stephen his hygrometer and his other instruments. He wants to tell Stephen as well about the singing of the Orkney men. Um, he wants as well to see what Stephen makes of their song in terms of where does it come from and what do his harmonies mean. He orders Davidge to have Macaulay and his men ease off the four tops of the yard exactly and only for the purpose of getting them to hoist it again so Stephen can hear the shanty. And the song starts again and Stephen compares it to what he describes as the seal singing of the Hebrides. And the Hebrides is the west of Scotland and a Gaelic culture rather than a Nordic culture, but it must be sounding similar. There must be some connections there. He also says maybe it's like something I've heard in the far west of Ireland. And Jack notes that this time the English part is sung a little differently. The, the words are one long pull, more power, young blood, more blood. And that, that final lyric, more mud, is replacing the final shriek from the previous time round. And we get the blocks clashing together, just like from the first time. And Jack decides he's going to talk to Stephen about that later. As they set sail, another song sounds out from the Orkney men. Afore the wind, afore the wind, God send, God send, fair weather, fair weather. Many prizes, many prizes. And the text says here, the naval surprises might not hold with shanties in general, but they thoroughly approved of this one, above all, its sentiment. And with the ship swinging to the true southwest by west and gathering speed, all those forward of the quarterdeck repeated, many prizes, many prizes. End of chapter one. Nice, nice. So these guys might not have all been going after gain, but they're quite happy to hear about many prizes, many prizes, especially after this unlucky beginning to the uh, to the voyage here. Wow. So it's been a great chapter. Really interesting amongst all the catching up here. We've got a couple of bits of jeopardy looming. We've got, we've got two themes competing here. Uh, are we going to have good fortune and seamanship and luck? Are we going to have bad luck? Are we going to be undercut? by malign influences we've got the worm at the heart of the ministry we've got a jonah aboard maybe this standish thing is going to run and run we've got the happiness but then also the grumblings between Stephen and diana yeah and you know it's funny as you pointed out I, you know i was remembering even you know tom bullings who were always delighted to have on board you know it said that the tom Poolings, you know came aboard and, and was kind of glad to be getting out because his wife had gotten to be a bit shrewish because you know of his extended naval unemployment. So, you know, even, even when our good Tom is, is happy to get to sea, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and having a little bit of a tough time, that's, Oh, I hate that. I hate that though. So, ah, oh, gosh, I think we've got all the chess pieces on the board. We've been clearly reminded of who's who and what's what. And I think we're really set up to take off the next chapter. And I, for one, am really looking forward to finding out what happens. What do you say, Ian, next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Mike, I should like that of all things.
and Stephen says that he was mistaken. Their grave objections to using. Whoops, sorry, Sam. Oh, I think Mama's leaving. Oh, sorry, bud. Sorry, bud. 